Welcome, everybody, and thanks for listening to another edition of the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I am your host, Ralph Amsden, and I am on the way back from Pasadena, California, where Arizona State took a 44-37 loss against the UCLA Bruins in what was basically a critical game for both Jim Morris' staff and Todd Graham's staff as head coaches. Uh, And in an article that I posted last night on devilsdigest.com, I believe that it was Todd Graham and his staff that uh, essentially coached their way into a loss in this game. And so um, this is the road back from Pasadena, and we're going to talk about it. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down. I don't have to set the stage for you. If you follow Arizona State football, if you're listening to this podcast, you follow that program closely. Um, You know, this probably isn't the only Arizona State podcast that you listen to. And, uh, and, and while I appreciate that you're listening, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't feel like I have to go back and, and, and relitigate exactly what was at stake for Todd Graham and Jim Mora and the histories that have essentially led to this game uh, being played at the Rose Bowl in which both coaches really needed a win to escape any further scrutiny or any any further seat warming I guess as people would would put it um, you know both of these coaches were hired in 2012 uh, to come in and, and capitalize on the success of their predecessors while fixing some of the issues that their predecessors had and, and, and both had some success in doing that but not as of late and not with some of the best talent that they've ever really had in those positions one of the things that Joe Healy pointed out this week of, of the Speak of the Devils podcast was that you know UCLA is a school that over the last few years they, they've got 50 four and five star players that, that they've brought in and they're absolutely you know they've they've put together an absolutely disappointing run uh, with the talent that they've got on the field and there's a few reasons um, for that and they can make excuses the same way that Arizona State can certainly make excuses for, uh, for for some of the losses that they've had and nevertheless this was an incredibly important game UCLA coming into this game uh, was undefeated at home this year um, but did have five losses all to teams with winning records uh, but they did have five losses and they were giving up 303 yards rushing per game absolutely god-awful run defense and Arizona State knew that that was something that they were going to have to take advantage of. Arizona State historically uh, struggles on the road. They had a couple of years where they were doing well, uh, but they struggled under Dirk Cutter. They struggled under Dennis Erickson, and, and, and as of late, they're struggling under Todd Graham. They did get that win on the road at Utah. Um, they, you know, they had a close but no cigar game at, at, against Texas Tech. But a lot of people, and I think it was probably unanimous within the Arizona State media, myself included, picked Arizona State to to go to the Rose Bowl and to get a win. Now, the conditions that I set on that win, and there were several, because I I didn't feel that great about picking Arizona State, and and the reason why uh, was, was really simple. I mean, before the season, I put out there that I believed that Arizona State would would be 
a number, I, I think I, I set the number at seven of Pac-12 teams that finished the year either six and six or seven and five. And I believed very strongly that Arizona State would finish ahead of Utah and Colorado. Outside of that, uh, I, I wasn't so sure, but I did not think that they would get a win against either L.A. school. Now, I wasn't anticipating that, that UCLA was going to have some of the struggles uh, as far as defending the run that they did this year. But one of the things that I think, you know, uh, Arizona State fans, they just see the results of some of these games and expect, you know, uh, UCLA lost like 45-17 to Utah, um, and that's a team that Arizona State beat. Well, you know, therefore, Arizona State should go to the Rose Bowl and they should beat UCLA. Now, again, UCLA didn't have Josh Rosen in that game against Utah, and that was a seven-point game at halftime. So, you know, it's not like they were getting blown out the entire game. This is a da- it's a dangerous team. They're missing a lot of players due to injury. But one of the strengths of Arizona State has essentially been preparation. And if you don't know who it is that you're preparing for, if you have new guys coming in or, you know, in, in, in the uh, case of Jordan Lastly, the, the receiver who had over 100 yards receiving against Arizona State last night, you know, guys who just come off of suspension magically, uh, you know, if you don't know exactly who you're preparing for, uh, you know, then, then that's something that Arizona State's tended to struggle with over the years. When they win, they chalk it all up to, to preparation. Uh, uh, you know, and when they lose, it really comes down, they say, to execution. But but one of the things that I've noticed is that when you don't really know who's going to be on the field, and especially in out-of-conference play, when, when they're not teams that you have to prepare for year in and year out, you don't have a dossier full of what they do and their personnel packages and everything like that, you're tucked away, you know, when, when you're going about it for the first time, that's really when Arizona State seems to struggle the most. And I felt like that could be an issue. And so the conditions that I set for my prediction of ASU winning that game 42-40 to was that Arizona State was going to have to score at least 40 points, that they were going to have to make sure that they realized that no lead was safe, that there was no amount that they could get up by that UCLA would not be able to come back from. And I hearken that back to what UCLA was able to do when they came back and won their season opener against Texas A&M. So, you know, those were the two things that I said absolutely needed to happen. And the other thing that I said was Arizona State needs to have a dedication to the run game that goes beyond anything, absolutely anything that you've you've ever seen before, that they they need to go to the run over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to quote Marshawn Lynch and and it's not something that they can they can get bored of it's not something that they can give up on um, it's not something where they can outsmart themselves you know this is one of those things where uh, ultimately UCLA's run defense is so bad that you get to a point where you feel like it's just too good to be true it's too good to be true. So you try to do other things. You try to run your offense. You try to be cute. You try to have end arounds. You try to have, you know, reverse passes. Uh, you know, you try to you try to hit slants. You try to throw into coverage on the sideline and do all the things that you're used to doing. You want to feel like you can just run your offense and win. You know, that's the arrogance of coaches. They, they believe that their system is the best. The same reason that coaches have success is the same reason that coaches fail. You know, you have to have a certain level of arrogance about what it is that you're doing. Confidence bordering on, on, on arrogance. But ultimately, you know, 
the one thing about UCLA that is consistent is they have not been able to stop the run. And you're coming off a week when the run saved you. When Colorado not being able to, to stop the run allowed you to score 24 points in the fourth quarter and come out with a win. So Arizona State's in a situation where the option was obvious. Run the ball. And they did. They ran the ball 61 times against UCLA. Tied for the most attempts ever under Todd Graham at Arizona State, dating back to uh, the first time that Todd Graham and Mike Leach met up when Arizona State beat Washington 45-7 to back in 2012. But they ran the ball 61 times in that game because they were just trying to choke Washington State out and hold on to the ball. This was different. And 61 times wasn't enough. And if you watch that game, and again, if you listen to a podcast like this, you probably not only watched that game, but maybe watched it a second time. And some of that play calling had to drive you absolutely nuts. There was time and time again where they had success in the running game, and they 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 pulled away and opted to pass, and ultimately put themselves in a in a position uh, to not succeed. One of the things that has to drive you absolutely insane if you're an Arizona State fan is they had three field goals made from inside the 25-yard line. That's not what you want. Not at all. But let's get back into this game. Let's rehash a little bit of what happened and why I believe that ultimately Arizona State coached themselves into losing what was essentially a must-win game for them. So you come into this game, UCLA is giving up 303 yards a game on the ground. They gave up 160 to a running back from Hawaii, for goodness sakes. You know, Timmy Chang and Colt Brennan, Hawaii, known for throwing the ball every time Hawaii. Now, they're a little bit more balanced than they used to be, but if they couldn't stop someone from Hawaii, you know, they're not going to be able to stop Demario Richard and Kalen Balazs. And you come into this game, and you have, essentially, immediate success running the ball. But you decide to go to the pass. And it doesn't work out. On two plays in a row, you get one-yard gains. And then, you know, Manny takes a sack, and you have to punt. And that right there should tell you, all right, the, they're early on, you know, maybe these plays are scripted, but early on they kind of have the pass figured out. Let's stick with what's working. Uh, and, I, you know, I'll tell you what, Demario looked good last night. Kalen Balaj, the situations that he put, that, that, that Arizona State put him in, um, continue to be mind-boggling uh, for me as an observer of what his strengths are. Um, but it, ultimately, he had some success as well. There was one occasion last night where they stacked eight in the box, handed the ball to uh, where UCLA stacked eight in the box. ASU handed the ball to Keelan Balazs up the middle. He got eight yards anyway. And, I mean, this is not this offensive line is nothing to write home about for Arizona State. They're improving. They're very far from what they're going to be yet. They're a work in progress. You know, but even even they were really able to get some traction against UCLA's defensive line, against their young linebackers. 
Arizona State's biggest problem probably as far as the running game is they, they didn't really have any explosive plays. Um, which, you know, Arizona State's defense is susceptible to giving up and gave up on several occasions yesterday. But, you know, th- there was a 22-yard run by DeMario Richard where, you know, he, he, he spotted the safety and essentially ran right into him. You know, there are parts of DeMario Richard's game that you absolutely love, his ability to get yards after contact, uh, you know, but the way that he seeks out contact ultimately isn't like – it's not going to be good for, um, you know, those those open field highlights and cutbacks that you see a lot of other backs make. Kalen Balaj is the same way. Give him a full head of steam, you know, and, and, and often he'll seek out contact down, down the field. If you want a running back who's who's gonna try to you know wiggle their way into the open field, seek out open ground and and and, and go from there. You know you're probably awaiting the era of Eno Benjamin and Traylon Smith. That that's gonna be more of a strength uh, in their game than it has been for Demario Richard and Caleb Milaj the last four years. You know, they're going to seek out contact. And so, you know, Arizona State ultimately doesn't have, you know, any explosive plays while they run the ball 61 times. You know, they're just picking up little chunks here and there, which might be part of the reason where, why it felt like maybe the coaches got anxious about it or, or a little bored with it. But anxious and boring, you know, those, I mean, those are, those are good if at the end of the day you're winning the game. But over and over again, and I, I, I detailed it in my premium article on devilsdigest.com, and if you're not a subscriber, please, please subscribe. If you listen to this podcast and you're not a subscriber of devilsdigest.com, there's not a better place um, to get to get information, to be part of community, um, you know, at, at least for me. I absolutely love it there. And, and you know, we're working with Hoder Bino and Sandy Charles and Justin Toscano, uh, you know, we have Jeff Griffith, Griffith writing for us right now, and, and great basketball coverage. I know we're getting into basketball season we'll talk a little bit more about that in future podcasts but you know this is this is really a focus on the on the UCLA game and I'm telling you right now that a subscription to Devil's Digest is the closest that you're going to get to being able to figure out this manic team and that's what I wrote about I, I, I broke down essentially the drives in which Arizona State got away from what was working and paid a price for it uh, you know, I believe it was on Arizona State's either third or fourth drive. Um, you know, they come out and attempt to pass right away. The ball's tipped. Uh, you know, in in the post game press conferences, you, you, there there were there were players for you know, and coaches for UCLA who said that you know Manny Wilkins definitely has a tendency to you know to zip the ball right over the line of scrimmage, and they figured if they get their hands up, they could make something like this happen. Well. They have a tipped pass, intercepted, and returned for a touchdown when it's 14 to nothing. And that makes the game 14 to 7. And now, you know, what what has kind of been the narrative, um, even from us at, at, at Devil's Digest, is that that changed the game. Um, but at that point, it's still 14 7. It's still 14-7. Arizona State's still getting the ball back. They've st- you know, UCLA hasn't shown that they have the ability to stop the run. And so, as much as that hurt, and Tom Bradley, UCLA's defensive coordinator, did say that at that point in the game, when Arizona State was up 14 to nothing, that it felt like ASU was in complete control of the game. 
and he feels like it was it, it was something that shifted the momentum, even though there are going to be a lot of articles that say that that interception is what turned the game around for you for UCLA, and you know they did go on a thirty-four to ten run from there. Arizona State absolutely contributed to UCLA's success through the way that they called that game and the way that they attempted to attack that UCLA defense. Here are the things that worked for Arizona State. Running between the tackles with Demario Richard. Running between the tackles with Kalen Balazs. Slant routes to Jalen Harvey. And the occasional, even though they're covered, let's throw it anyway, to Kyle Williams and Nikhil Harry. Nothing else was really working. You know, Arizona State had a drive where they ran the ball, I believe, 10 or 11 times in a row for 75 yards and a touchdown. And on their next drive, they come out and they attempt to do some sort of end around with Kyle Williams. It was sniffed out immediately. They have a loss of five yards, and then they're in a situation where they have to pass. It doesn't work out. You know, they run a third down draw, and that's, that's that. That's the end of that drive. They didn't capitalize on the success that they had the time before when you ran the ball every time and scored. There was nothing that UCLA could have done about it. Nothing. And I get that you have to keep them honest. I mean, ultimately, you get to a point where if UCLA's putting nine in the box, you know, you might not be able to get three yards a carry. And so you have to mix it up a little bit. You have to keep them honest. But I feel like UCLA is going to respect the fact that Nikhil Harry's on the outside, that you're shifting Kyle Williams around. You're doing enough to confuse these young linebackers. And you'd shown. The 21 points that they had at halftime, they'd shown. That they had the ability to at least, at least put UCLA in a situation where at most there were seven guys in the box. So you go into halftime up 21-20, exactly half of what my final score prediction, uh, you know, was, 42-20 or 42-40 ASU. You go into halftime 21-20, and you have to be feeling pretty good. You, You know, you gave up the interception return for a touchdown. You miss a field goal right before halftime, but you still have the lead. Josh Rosen at this point, despite ASU generating no pass rush, Zero pass rush uh, is only 10 of 25. So in coverage, you're doing fantastic. Rosen looks a little rusty. His accuracy isn't necessarily there. But in coverage, Arizona State looks really good. And, you know, at that point, if you're Arizona State, you have to feel like if you go out and you do what works... You should be able to get the win. You know, Arizona State was getting the ball first. They were getting the ball first to come out of halftime. And on that opening drive, they ended up having a punt. They didn't show a dedication to the run or even more of a dedication, you know, to the run. I know I, I, I had tweeted something at some point in the game that, you know, the, the run-to-pass ratio was essentially 3-1 to one at halftime, and, and fans on Twitter were calling it for, for it to be closer to infinity to none. 
They didn't want to see Arizona State throw the ball. There was no reason to throw the ball. And now, before you go and say, like, you have to throw the ball, you have to have a balanced offense, I'm just going to point out that University of Arizona has completely just abandoned the idea that you even need to throw the ball. Last night in University of Arizona's victory against Oregon State, Khalil Tate ran for over 200 yards on, I think, like 19 carries. They had seven passing attempts all game long. Very much resembled the second half of the game that Arizona State played against U of A last year. They just stick with what works. Which is something that Arizona State used to do. Remember the back shoulder throw to Jalen Strong? Do it until they prove they can stop it. And that's really what Arizona State should have been doing. You know, after the game, Todd Graham, he said, you know, you run for 300 yards, you should win the game. Arizona State ran for 294 yards on 61 carries. 294 yards on 61 carries. So they didn't even get to what UCLA's average was, 303 per game. But he's right. If you run the ball that many times and you dominate possession the way that they did, it should be indicative of getting a win. But you gave up the pick six, which wouldn't have happened if you run the ball. You gave up points in the first half off of drives where you were forced to punt, and you were forced to punt because you had been moving the ball on the ground, and you decide in third and five situations, that's a good time to pass. Second five, third and five. You give the ball up, I, I believe they go for it on a fourth, uh, a fourth down. You get the ball, it's, it's second and five. And instead of running it twice, running it once, you know, you have an incomplete pass, and then you have Manny scrambling. And that's something that Manny has really struggled to do, is to scramble for positive yards. Somebody who has very long strides, is super fast, crazy athletic, loves to jump over people, but when it comes to finding open space on the field, I mean, just can't. Has shown time and time again that... You know, and, and, and I hate to make comparisons, but when a quarterback runs, I, I could hearken back to Taylor Kelly, but right now, you know, the hot news item is Khalil Tate at University of Arizona. When you see open space, you go to it. You don't out-juke yourself. You don't take too much time. You just go. You don't think about it. You move. And Manny waits in the pocket until kind of all the reads are gone, and then he really telegraphs, hey, I'm going to start running now. You know, and a lot of teams spy him for his athleticism, and he's not somebody who gets a lot of positive yards when the play breaks down. He's somebody who will make sure that the ball doesn't get turned over for the amount of hits he takes. You know, the guy doesn't fumble, so you have to give him that. But he's really the master of working himself back to the line of scrimmage, even though there might be, uh, there might be or might have been a lane for him to take off running. And he's not the fastest quarterback, straight line speed that Arizona State's ever had. Obviously, you know, that that was Taylor Kelly. That was a guy that you know once he accelerated and got moving in in, in one direction. Um, 
could really make things happen because he kept it simple. He ran toward open space. You know, maybe he's not the shiftiest quarterback that Arizona State's ever had. Obviously, Jake Plummer was somebody uh, who had incredible pocket presence and an ability just to slip away from anything and everything. You know, something that he used to, to ultimately turn around and survive six years with the Arizona Cardinals and no offensive line help. But he's definitely the most athletic. And he can run. He does have speed. And, and he, he essentially could be elusive. For Manny Wilkins, it's really all about timing. But again, would he even be in those situations to notice that everybody's covered, to have everything break down, and for him to struggle to get back to the line of scrimmage or get one or two yards at a time? Would he even be in that situation if the design of each of those calls had either been, you know, read option for him to keep or hand off? or handing the ball off up the middle. You know, still most of the running that Arizona State did, uh, if not all of the running that Arizona State did, came out of the shotgun formation yesterday, which is incredible because that's been something that, that, that that's, it's been tough for Arizona State to be effective in the ground game out of the shotgun formation you know, with, with, with running backs running across the, the quarterback's face. Um, you know, they've telegraphed a few of their plays at times. The offensive line hasn't been able to get an initial push in a few of their games. You know, that Washington game that they won it was a game where they absolutely struggled uh, in the running game. and The defense really bailed them out, picked them up. But back to this UCLA game. And I, I know I've kind of gone off on a tangent, but again, this is me driving back from Pasadena and it's a stream of consciousness on, you know, on what it is we saw last night and trying to work through some of the frustrations and explain exactly what it is uh, that went wrong. And what's funny is I think I'm taking a long time and overcomplicating a situation much in the same way that, that Arizona State's, you know, whether it was quality control all the way up to the offensive coordinator through Todd Graham overcomplicated the idea that you just need to play smash mouth football and get a win. All you needed was a win. That's it. It didn't have to be pretty. And Arizona State's proven that it, it doesn't matter. It, it, all that matters is the score at the end of the game. And that's something that Jim Moore opened his press conference with last night, you know, that I found really interesting. And I opened my article with it on devilsdigest.com. You know, Jim Morris said, I'm not a stat guy. You know, Todd Graham's the opposite. He's, the, he's one of the, he brings an iPad uh, to the post-game pressers, um, puts his reading glasses on, runs, first thing he does is run through stats. But Jim Morris said, you know, I, I don't know anything about the stats. I'm not a stat guy. All that matters is the win at the end of the game. And ultimately, that should have been the attitude of, 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 of Arizona State heading into that. The only thing that matters is a win, and the thing that's going to get you a win is an absurd dedication to running the ball. Now, again, Arizona State did run the ball 61 times. That is tied for the most they have ever run it, the most they have ever run it under Todd Graham. But it wasn't enough. 
and it wasn't even any more than a couple of other teams have run against UCLA this year as well. This isn't the first time that UCLA has faced 60-plus rushing attempts. In fact, I think it's the third. You don't get to pat yourself on the back for, you know, and, 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 and say, you know, well, we did more than we usually do when, when you end up losing the game. And I hate to side with the reactionary side of the family, which is essentially all of Twitter. You know, when you have Twitter pulled up, you know, I'm sure there's people in their living rooms and uh, the, the, that were second guessing and had plenty to say about about what Todd Graham and Billy Napier were doing last night and some of the defensive issues, missed tackles, uh, penalties, etc. Um, you know, and the crowd definitely made it known. Uh, you know, when when the final whistle blew and it was 44-37, uh, you know, the ASU contingent, uh, not all of them, but a decent enough portion to make some noise, got a fire Todd chant going. So, you know, it's not just the people on Twitter that are out expressing their frustration. You know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure there were, you know, a, a couple of remote controls thrown in living rooms, uh, and, uh, and, and things of that nature, but, you know, ultimately Twitter's what I see. And all I saw last night was people absolutely freaking out that Arizona State wouldn't be more dedicated to the run than they already were. And I typically don't like to go with the really reactionary um, gut stuff because it really changes from week to week. And a lot of it really hinges on, on the ultimate result of the game. But the truth is, this time, I've got no counter-argument. None. They could have run the ball every single time. Chose not to. UCLA, while they did hold Arizona State to, I think, 4.8 yards a carry, which is well under the six a carry that they're, you know, that they're giving up um, season-wide or season-long, uh, they, they still didn't show that three yards and a cloud of dust wasn't going wasn't gonna to be the end of them. It's not like that they were getting into the backfield, and even when they were, DeMario was, you know, spinning away from that stuff. And a true dedication to the run game, I believe, would probably involve dipping back into the well, you know, that, that gave you some success against Colorado and making use of Eno Benjamin. He had three carries. Probably should have had more. Three carries for 18 yards. Probably should have had more. The touchdown that he had probably should have come on the ground and not off of a block Malik LaWall punt. I wouldn't have been upset to see Nick Ralston getting handoffs. Traylon Smith. Shoot. Throw J.J. Wilson in a fullback. Do whatever it takes. Stats don't matter. All that matters is getting the win, and the thing that would have got you the win is being even more dedicated to the run than you were. So in that second half, Josh Rosen finds his footing. And one of the reasons he finds his footing is because JoJo Wicker and Deshaun Smallwood are not able to win individual battles against offensive linemen who were essentially, you know, 
serving as the replacements. You know, they still have Questenberry, but a lot of the guys that are starting on that offensive line weren't the projected starters going into the season. And that, that offensive line for UCLA has overperformed. You know, they've given up 20 sacks on the year, which I would say is probably about, about average for an offensive line of their talent level and youth. But ASU didn't get a sack. I think they're now 1-7 all-time in, in games under Todd Graham where they don't sack the quarterback. And I know Todd Graham after the game said, you know, they, they had opportunities to get him and just didn't. Um, but the truth is, I, Josh Rosen not only had a comfortable pocket most of the night, he, he also has a very quick release. So in the times when he didn't have a quick release or in the times when he made mental errors, there was a time when he fumbled the ball and there was just nobody there to do anything about it. He recovered it and ended up getting positive yardage, you know, running it. So no pass rush. Defensive line underperforms. Josh Rosen's not going to be held in check forever. This is a guy who was incredibly beat up last year in Tempe when Arizona State won 23-20 and still threw for 400 yards. He's not going to be held in check, especially when you're giving them extra possessions, when you could just hold the ball all game and really limit the amount of time that he has to do damage. So eventually he starts picking apart Arizona State's essentially the safeties. And Chase Lucas had a pretty decent game. You didn't hear a lot from, from Kobe Williams. A, a few of the passes um, Rosen made really came on, on broken plays. Uh, one of the things that Josh Rosen said after the game was that they knew that Phil Bennett had a defense that they really just like to stay in because it works. But what they were depending on was Todd Graham wanting to get aggressive and essentially either audibling Arizona State's defense out of that or telling Phil Bennett it's time, since we haven't sacked him, that we need to sell out and blitz. And Josh Rosen said their goal going into the game was to get them to sell out and blitz once, gash them on that play, and teach them a lesson to never do it again. So great game plan by UCLA offensively because that's exactly what happened. Arizona State wasn't able to get a pass rush when they did blitz. Josh Rosen, quick release on a, on, on, you know, on a swing or a screen, and it's off to the races. Made Arizona State pay every time. So Arizona State tries to get some pressure. Smallwood, Wicker, Latu. Didn't work. Didn't happen. All night, zero sacks. So... You know, the real MVP of the game ultimately ends up being UCLA's offensive line because they've given up 20 sacks and they came into the game, uh, you know, producing 120 rushing yards a game. So UCLA's opponents had a plus 170, like 179 or something like that advantage as far as rushing yards on the season. Just incredible margin. The UCLA not having a great time run blocking, doing an average job of pass blocking, 
and Arizona State ends up with zero sacks and gives up 190 yards rushing to a team that averages 123. So great job by UCLA's offensive line. Um, I did go and watch UCLA's offensive line warming up uh, because there's a couple of local kids in Jack's Waycaser and Sean Seawards that I uh, covered in high school, and I wanted to snap a couple of photos of them. And one thing that I noticed prior to the game, you know, prior to the game, Arizona State was really loose. You know, they came out. They, they, uh, Todd Graham was out fist bumping everybody, getting everyone fired up. Uh, Frank Darby was doing his usual dancing around on the field. Um, you know, the, the team just looked really, really loose. I walked over to the UCLA side, and those players were covered in sweat. Pre-game warm-ups, they were getting intense. They were hitting each other. They were going live. When I talked to Jack's Waycaser after the game, he said that was the entire week of practice. Because you have to remember, they played the previous Thursday night against Utah, so they had nine days to prepare for Arizona State. And he said this is the most physical week of practice they've had. Josh Rosen said after the game they did everything they could to just completely tune out the outside world, only focus on this week, draw closer as a team, and they had an intense week of practice. So I'm on one sideline, and, 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 and ASU looks loose and ready to go and confident. I'm on the other sideline, and, and, and you know, uh, those boys in powder blue, they're, they're already working up a sweat. I don't know if that speaks to the larger narrative of what ultimately ended up happening. I just thought it was an interesting observation at the time. It's something that I noted at the time. And ultimately, you know, UCLA's offensive line, that, that that's one area where you can say that ASU honestly got its tail kicked. But ASU's defense shouldn't have been in a lot of the situations that they were in. You can't excuse not getting a pass rush. You can't. You can't excuse Manny Wilkins not putting any touch on any of his passes. You know, if, if, if football doesn't work out for Manny Wilkins, he's got a great future, you know, as a guy on movie set who serves as the person who throws a brick through somebody's window in any movie where someone's being harassed, you know. Because he, I mean, he's trying to break fingers every single time he throws the ball. You know, I can't excuse that. I can't excuse Brandon Ruiz missing his seventh field goal of the season. Sure, he's a freshman, but he's a freshman that came in with high expectations, an Alabama commit. He's a freshman who said he wanted to win the Groza as a freshman. He embraced the pressure. He embraced the high bar. And you can't have a kicker with seven missed field goals by week 10. You can't. So I'm not going to excuse those things. But how many of those situations of Manny Wilkins being in a position to not put a t touch on, on, on the pass or, or the defensive line being on the field too much or Brandon Ruiz in situations to kick field goals, how many of those things shouldn't be happening? But ultimately, a lot of the things that you're frustrated with as far as execution can be put back on 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 the play calling, not putting everybody in a position to succeed. After the game, Todd Graham said, you know, this isn't on the players. And I 100% agree. 
I fully believe that Arizona State coached themselves into a loss. And here's where it gets just disgusting. When Arizona State finally did show that absurd dedication, that over-the-top dedication to running the ball, it was in the most incredibly inappropriate situation to manageable. Like, you can't imagine Arizona State doing what they did on their final drive of the game, but they did it anyway. After Arizona State gets into a situation where it's fourth and three, and now on fourth and three, maybe you want to try to run the ball, but no, they have Nikhil Harry, so they're going to throw it 39 yards down the field. He's going to pick it out of the sky, and he's going to keep Arizona State alive because that's what he does. Nikhil Harry and Kyle Williams... Nikhil Harry and Kyle Williams give this coaching staff excuses to keep making questionable decisions, in my opinion. There was a point in the game where Arizona State had a third and 18 backed up against their own end zone on the 13-yard line. And before the play was run, I turned to Hoden and I said, this is going to be one of those third downs they pick up. And it's not going to do, ultimately, it's not going to do anything good for them in the long run because they're going to believe that this is just something that's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be able to pick up third and 15 plus. And I think it might have been Jalen Harvey that was hit, you know, for, for the first down. So they get it. But they shouldn't be doing those things. They shouldn't be in those third and long situations in the first place. So here we are, another fourth and three, and Manny Wilkins, to my surprise, you know, instead of trying to just pick up the first down, they, they, they get the 39 yards, they get down to, I believe, the 11-yard line, over two minutes left, two timeouts. Here's what you can do in this situation if you're Arizona State. You're down 10, 44-34. You can kick the field goal immediately. If you kick the field goal immediately, you have two timeouts left. You're down seven. And if your onside kick doesn't work, if your defense gets a stop, you can get the ball back. They don't kick the field goal immediately. What do they do? When your options are probably kick the field goal immediately or take a shot at the end zone with just over two minutes left, they run the ball. They run the ball with Kalen Balaj right up the middle, four yards. Time starts ticking off the clock. They realize that they got to stop it. Instead of running the field goal team out there and just kicking it right then and saving the two timeouts, Arizona State takes a timeout to talk over what they're going to do with two minutes left. So with two minutes left, the options are, are really go to the end zone because if it, worst thing that can happen, you know, if it gets picked off, it's over. But if you if you go to the end zone, you have six foot seven uh, Curtis Hodges, who was in the game. He was in the game in these final crucial drives. A freshman that everyone was sure would redshirt is in the game. You know, you have a six foot seven guy, borderline six foot eight in cleats and a helmet. You have Nikhil Harry. You know, you have Kyle Williams, who's shown that he can make a play. You have all these guys. You're at the seven-yard line. Two minutes left. One timeout. Because you took a timeout. Because you ran the ball. And what do they do? They hand the ball up the middle to Kalen Balazs. 
take 40 seconds off the clock, and then realize, ah, oh, we got to kick this field goal. So it's 44-37, and Arizona State is left with no option but to, to have, recover the onside kick with one timeout left. So the one time, they should have been running the ball the entire game. They wouldn't have been in a situation at the end uh, like they were had they, had they done that. But the one time when it's not necessarily appropriate to run the ball, you do it not once but twice and throw a timeout away. So the only reason you're in that situation is because of the questionable play calling. And then all the scrutiny and all the eyes are on you to do something about it, to dig yourself out of the hole that you put your team in. And you embarrass yourself. You embarrass yourself. Running the ball on first and 10 with just over two minutes left from the 11-yard line didn't make sense. Taking the timeout to make up for it put you in a situation where you really had to score or stop the clock, and you choose to run the ball up the middle again. Now, you're getting positive yards. It's that same four yards and a cloud of dust that would have done you a ton of good in the previous three quarters and was doing you good. Most of the success that you had in the game up to that point came from that. Sure, you had one drive where you were backed up third and 18 and ultimately passed your way all the way inside the 10, but then you didn't finish that drive off and ended up having to kick a field goal. So sure, you had some success passing the ball, but a lot of that was forced. A lot of that stuff that is 50-50 balls that shouldn't necessarily be going in Arizona State's favor, you know, but they've got elite players on the edge who are, who are taking advantage of, of their situations. But you run the ball with two minutes left, one timeout, you get it down to 120, and then you put then you put your kicker in a situation where he has to kick the perfect onside kick in order for you to be able to have a chance to tie the game at 44. And what does Arizona State do? They run the same onside kick formation where they kick the ball right up the middle and, and essentially Brandon Ruiz uh, has to chase it down himself. They do the same exact thing. They do the onside kick that they've already put on film. UCLA was more than ready for it. They get the ball, take three knees, it's over. So in the, one, in the one time where you put yourself in a position where you have to manage the clock, where you have to throw the ball, I believe on that final drive that started with like 5.13 left, they handed the ball off to Kalen Balazs four times, I think maybe for a total of 23 yards. Those handoffs should have been at other times. And it was up the middle, too, that four for 23. 
lose a 15, a 0, a 4, and a 4. The play calling that would have kept you from being in the situation where the play calling that you made made you look ridiculous. And so now, Arizona State's 5-5, five and five, and they're completely dependent on going to Corvallis and getting a win. Completely dependent. They have to. They don't have a choice. Losing in Corvallis, for a lot of people, is what started this downward spiral. Arizona State was ranked number six against a poor Oregon State team. They go up. It's cold. They can't stop the run. They, I mean, they get destroyed. And instead of playing for a national championship, they go... I mean, they spiral out of control. They've been trying to regain their footing ever since. And while they've been getting their head above water here and there, catching a breath, they're still drowning. And part of the reason they're drowning is because, you know, they're weighing themselves down. Instead of a life jacket, they've got on a jacket filled with rocks. They should have beat Texas Tech this year. They should have beat San Diego State. They definitely should have beat UCLA. This is a team that should already be on its eighth win. Instead, we're looking at a 5-5 five and five team that you're just praying can go beat what is probably the worst Oregon State team talent-wise. And I know a lot of these guys because a lot of them are from Arizona and I've, I've covered them and I respect them and I, you know, I root for them to do well because part of my job is covering high school football and I want them to have success. But they're not, and they've shown that their talent level doesn't match up to what everybody else has in the Pac-12. And Arizona State's going to have to go up there and hope that they don't continue to play to the level of their competition. On the road, at noon, get this win, become bowl eligible, and then hinge everything on a game against University of Arizona and the hottest player in the entire country as far as what he's been able to do in a team who you weren't able to stop last year from the quarterback running the ball. And now they just have that situation all over again on steroids. This game was huge. They had to beat UCLA at UCLA. They had to. And UCLA was equally desperate. There were people flying planes over the stadium before the game that said fire Mora. And guess what? You know, UCLA all of a sudden is 5-0 and at home this year makes it a lot easier to stomach keeping on a coach who ultimately I believe that staff isn't equipped to get it done they've recruited well but they've not done a lot with it and yeah the injury bug has bit 
But they lost some games that they shouldn't have. Memphis embarrassed them through the air when Memphis probably could have run the ball on the game on them all game. You know, they, they, they've shown that they don't have the ability to stop anybody on you. They're essentially Arizona State last year. Six years into Jim Moore's tenure, is that good enough? You know, if they get embarrassed by USC next week, he might be gone anyway. But being 5-0 and at home, you know, when they haven't had a perfect home season since 2005, that's something that you're going to take into consideration when you figure out whether or not it's time to move on to a new coach. And Arizona State gave, gave UCLA that gift. Maybe, maybe it's a long play. Maybe you see the continued demise of UCLA if Jim Morris stays around. So you give them the gift of the home win against Arizona State that shouldn't have happened. You know, where they're playing 35 freshmen and sophomores. Just so that he'll stick around and the program can deteriorate that much more next year. But I I do not believe that Arizona State staff is playing playing chess at the expense of their own future. There is no long play here. Arizona State needed this win. They had the ability to get this win. The recipe was simple. They screwed up a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Something probably only I could do in the kitchen. Run the ball. Run the ball over and over and over and over again. Run it up the middle. Run between the tackles. And when they show that they've they've stopped it and only then and only when you've been overly stubborn to the point where they've held you and held Demario Richard to four carries in a row that are less than three yards only then consider changing things up and only consider changing things up so that you can go back to having success running the ball up the middle Demario Richard can handle 30 carries in a game. Kalen Bellage, if you give him the ability to, to, to accelerate, you know, he's somebody who can handle 25 touches. Another crazy Kalen Bellage moment last night by the way, somebody who they were supposed to be using in the passing game all season long. Pac-12 Media Day made it sound like he was going to touch the ball 20 to 25 times a game, and, and, and seven of those were going to come through the passing game. You know, I think they have like a third and five situation or whatever, and Manny all of a sudden is going deep down the right sideline, and who is it that's streaking 45 yards down the field after not really being used in the passing game all season long? It's Kalen Balazs who gets overthrown. Why? Why do that? Why not take the yards? These are questions that Arizona State staff is ultimately going to have to answer. They didn't run the ball, and now they can't run from these questions. 
and asterisk, you know, they didn't run the ball enough. And when they did show an absurd dedication to the run game, which is what they needed to show in this game, an absurd dedication to the run game, it was too late, and it was at an inappropriate time. And because of that, Todd Graham's coaching for his job in Corvallis next week. Can they get it done? Or are you already worried about University of Arizona? Are you already, if you're a player, are you already thinking about the fact that it's your coaches who let you down? There's no secret. Maybe you didn't execute on every play, but you weren't set up to succeed in this game. Do the coaches start to lose the players when they see guys like Omar Bolden tweet, it's time for new leadership? When you see former players openly talk about the fact that it's time to move on. The same way that it happened last year. Can you keep your head? Can you keep what ended up happening against Arizona from happening one week earlier against Oregon State? We'll have to see. Because even if they get that win, it ultimately comes down to Arizona coming to Tempe, a stadium where no one seems to come to watch football. Over a holiday weekend, you're risking having a Heisman candidate and 20,000 University of Arizona fans filling up Sun Devil Stadium. So I want to close with this. I believe Arizona State's going to Oregon State, and they're getting a win. And if you listen to this podcast, it's probably a supplemental podcast to ones that you already consume. But that Arizona game is one that you're going to need to be there for. Because you can't trust Arizona State to do what it is that they need to do to win. Therefore, you need to be part of them having every possible advantage, if that makes sense. They'll need a crowd, one that stays through the end. And I know that that was a hot topic over the last week, and I have all my own thoughts about why people do and don't come to the games. <laughs> the one thing that always makes me laugh is it's the, it's the students who show up who take the brunt of the criticism or take the criticism personally when people ask why the student sections aren't filling out both infernos especially from people who were, you know, longtime season ticket holders kicked out of their longtime seats in order to make that inferno happen, especially on the north side, the north unferno, as I'm calling it. People are mad. And who do they tweet at? You know, the 942 crew, the people who actually show up to the game. This is like something going wrong at work and you taking it out by kicking the dog. The dog didn't do anything. The dog is loyal. The dog's your best friend. Don't kick your best friend. Don't take your anger with the fact that people aren't showing up to these football games out on the people who do show up to the football games just because they're there, just because they're the ones that will conversate with you about it, and they're the ones that will hear you tantrum about it. 
It is a many layered cake <laughs> or onion or whatever has layers when it comes to why people don't show up. I'm not a huge fan of the fact that every, look, everything's built for TV. Everything. Everything is built for television. These kickoff times, you know, if you're if you're an Arizona Cardinals fan, they put that stadium way out in Glendale. They haven't exactly been world beaters. You know, they've been competitive. They haven't exactly been world beaters. They weren't before. They were absolutely abusive to the fan base that they had before getting that stadium out there. Yet it's full every single weekend. Why? Because the kickoff times are the exact same every time. They won a little bit, but it's not like their perennial playoff team. They won a little bit. But you know what to expect. You know when the games are going to be. You can plan around it. There are more ASU alumni living in Arizona than there are Cardinals fans in the United States. Guaranteed. Yet one stadium is full and one's not. What's the difference? Well, one of them encourages tailgating. One of them is at the same time every single week, unless moved to a Monday or a terrible Thursday game. So you know what to expect. They encourage an environment that a lot of Arizona State fans wish you know, was was something that they could have at at ASU. But you know, it's not the winning. You know, and and, and football's built for TV, and everything that the Pac-12 does is geared for TV. We wait thir- either six days out or thirteen days out to find out what time these kickoffs will be. You can't plan more than two weeks in advance for where you have to be and when. You have to keep your entire day open. Your entire day open to figure out when the team's going to play. Because it's geared for television. They want you to watch the game on television. And with 4K Ultra HD TVs, the same price as season tickets, and the fact that they're pushing you to stay home, A lot of people are just doing it. They want you to stay home. This money that they've spent on the stadium, reducing the capacity, making everything better, ultimately, less and less people are going to come to the games. And that will not have been money well spent. It won't. Because you gear and do everything for television. You acquiesce to whatever Larry Scott and the Pac-12 conference want you to do. You have no control over your own schedule. So all you can do is win. And there's the theory that if you win, they'll show up. But they've been reducing capacity every single year. And this is, the, this is probably the thing that I hate the absolute most is somebody for AZ Central wrote wrote a counterpoint article about why 
you shouldn't blame the fans for not attending. And I, I agree to some point that you shouldn't necessarily blame the fans because they're building this in for the purpose of you watching it on television. They want you to watch on TV. Now, should the students be coming out? Sure. Can you control that? No. They go where the party's at. And the attitude surrounding the program, one of the reasons why you don't want to be a program that calls for the firing of a coach, you depress your own turnout. You contribute to that environment. It's just a feedback loop of negativity that keeps people away from the game. And then you talking about why they don't go to the game makes them not want to come to the game. Everybody feeds into it. It's inevitable. A large percentage of people are cynical and outspoken. And since we're all plugged in, we all hear it. There is no escaping all of the criticism and the fact that it's a team that can let you down. But it shouldn't be about the team, it should be about the experience. You're in college one time. And you gotta think about the fact that some of these kids who are graduating, the ones who actually go to class, you know, the three and a half year students, they're gonna graduate without seeing a successful football team. So their entire impression of Arizona State's gonna be colored. Will they be alumni that come back and go to the games when all their experiences have been odd? So you have this negative feedback loop and you have the fact that everything is built for television and the Pac-12 network as a whole is doing its best to absolutely suppress turnout. I mean, you should have seen the turnout at UCLA, ASU, at the Rose Bowl. It was pathetic. They announced 50,000, felt like 40. Super laissez-faire crowd, especially once ASU got up 14-nothing. I've been, I've, there have been louder high school crowds. So, you know, the Pac-12, you know, you have cities where there's stuff to do. I get that. Competing events, all that, busy lives. But the truth is they're building this for television. They want you to watch it on television. And then the media comes out and bashes you when you do it. It's a no-win situation. Arizona State is spending a lot of money, a lot of people's money, renovating a room that no one's going to go in. And it's a shame. But the one stat, and I want to get back to this, the one stat that drives me absolutely crazy that people who defend the turnout of these games like to quote is percentage of capacity filled. That is a ridiculous statistic to quote. It's ridiculous. I've had conversations with defenders of the program, with employees of the program, about this exact thing. That Arizona State filled a certain capacity, and as they've dropped down the number of available seats, the number of total attendees has dropped in conjunction with that. So ultimately, their argument is, if you have a 77,000-seat stadium and 70,000 show up, that it would only make sense that if you cut it down to a 50,000-seat stadium, 45,000 would show up. 
that it's about percentage of capacity filled. No, that doesn't make sense because you used to have 70,000 showing up. If you cut down the capacity of your stadium, then you should have people who aren't able to get tickets. It shouldn't decline in conjunction. And even if it does decline in conjunction, it's not because that's just something that naturally occurs. That's insane to think that. There are multiple, many layered factors going into why people don't attend the games. One, you can't plan for when it's going to be. Two, people aren't able to enjoy themselves the way that they used to or the way that they want to. Three, the program's not winning. Four, they want you to watch it on TV. It doesn't matter the amount of money that you spend and the amount of amenities that are there. Those things are always going to factor into depressing turnout. And then, of course, you have the whole, you're in a city with other stuff to do. It's, if, if you've been going to ASU games for a while, you know, for a lot of people, it's customary to show up in the second, third quarter because you've been hanging out on mill. Or leave early because you want to hang out on mill. So those things will always happen. But still, those are tickets sold. Those are tickets sold. Those are still people that are coming to the game. But the idea that you shouldn't be alarmed because the capacity... The, the capacity of seats filled remains at a consistent and or similar rate to what there used to be when you had 20,000 more seats is a stupid argument that I never want to hear again. It's literally a glass half full argument when you take a nearly empty glass and you pour the contents into a smaller glass in order to make the glass half full. It is delusional, excuse-making, terrible optimism. And I don't even think it's optimism. I think it's just excuses. I think that it's embarrassing for Arizona State that fans don't show up to the game. And I think that it's a natural inclination of people affiliated with the program or surrounding the program to say, well, no, actually, this is what we expected. No. No. In the same way that Arizona State's coaches should be embarrassed that they didn't run the ball enough to win at UCLA, people affiliated with Arizona State should be embarrassed that people don't want to come to these games for a variety of reasons. You should be embarrassed that you are essentially a slave to the Pac-12 conference. You should be embarrassed at the win-loss record. You should be embarrassed that it took this long to be able to allow people to do what they want to do, which is just be on their phones all day every day, in the stadium. Wireless accessibility, Wi-Fi accessibility, came five years later than it should have. People want to know what's going on with other games. That video board, those nice concourses, it's all its all going to be for naught. The only way to draw people back in is to win more games than you historically do. 
to schedule more intriguing opponents than you historically do. And to give people a game day experience near the stadium that makes them want to be around. The Cardinals are doing it and you're not. There is no excuse. Percentage of capacity? It's garbage. People aren't going to come to the games if you're not winning and if you are part of a conference whose every effort is to put you in a situation where they want you watching on TV. Are there diehards that listen to this podcast that bring their kids to games that start after their kids' bedtimes? Yeah. Is a typical family going to do it? No. Will that have long-term effects on a family that has three kids, has the means to be able to pay for five tickets, and would have been taking their kids to these games? And it would be ingrained in those kids that you go to these games and that you have this fun experience. Is that going to have a long-term effect? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have spent all of your time shooting yourself in the foot toe by toe. And then when people bring it up saying, look which toes I didn't shoot. Be honest about it. People don't want to come to Arizona State games for a variety of reasons. And the people that the frustration is being taken out on are the people that show up. And unfortunately, it's really, really hard to find a way to express your frustration to the right people, especially when they're caught up in statistics that make them feel able to justify the problem that you have in the first place. The turnout against Colorado was embarrassing. Period. Nobody deserves to be beat up over it if they showed up at that game. Nobody. But you have to look at what's going on. Media members are getting home at 4 in the morning. And all we have to do is write one story. You have coaches complaining. You know, ASU didn't get home from from playing UCLA till 3 in the morning yesterday. These are student athletes. Nobody likes these kickoff times. Everything's built for television. So that a few insomniacs on the East Coast can watch and you can say that you dominated a time slot. You don't know what to expect week to week. There's parity in the conference and they're all beating the hell out of each other. So nobody's really dominant and it doesn't really... You know, inspire you to want to, to, to sell out a stadium, and most of these cities have other stuff to do. Let's just quit making excuses for it and call a spade a spade. If you want fans there, make the game day experience better than watching it at home on your television and win. Don't spend $400 million in four years reducing the capacity of a stadium that I tell you what is only going to have 30,000 fans showing up in a few years. You're not going to stay at percentage of capacity because that's not a thing. The fans are declining because the conference has put itself in a position to advocate that the fans don't come. 
and they're responding accordingly. And the largest public university in the United States, whose freshman class alone would would fill a high school stadium every single year, can't fill a 50,000 feet uh, or, or person stadium. They can't. 400,000 alumni can't do it. Win or stay home. <laughs> That's the choice. But don't take it out on the people who do show up because they're going against the grain and they're going against what the Pac-12, what Arizona State, and what essentially every other bit of stimulus is telling them and encouraging them to do. Which is to save some money, enjoy the game in front of a 4K TV, spending a minimum amount of money because you've cut the cord and you've bought Sling for for Roku or something like that. So for 30 bucks a month, you can watch your team lose or underperform or perform to the level of their competition instead of having to do it in person. Don't beat up on people who go to the games. Because unfortunately, they're going the way of the Buffalo. Those people deserve praise. So that's it. This is the road back from Pasadena. Arizona State coaches its way to a 40-40-37 loss against the Bruins. They're 5-5. Five and five. And you got to hope they beat Oregon State and that there aren't more Arizona fans than ASU fans in the stadium. Unless you want a change made, then I guess you're stuck rooting against your team. It's a tough position to be in for an Arizona State football fan. I sympathize, but I don't think losing helps anyone. This could still be an eight-win team. I don't think it will be. I think they finish the season with seven wins, regardless of whether or not they beat University of Arizona. Will that be enough to keep this staff in place? Do you want this staff in place? If this staff is in place or not, are you going to be in person to see what they do from here on out? Let me know. Subscribe to devilsdigest.com if you haven't already. Jump in the premium huddle. Let's talk about it. This has been Ralph Amston, the road back from Pasadena, the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.